As we look forward to Christmas, there are lots of expectations that kind of fill our brains. We have expectations of parties and fun and probably too much food and seeing lots of people maybe we haven't seen before. And at the same time, there are some expectations in there that maybe aren't so happy, right? A little added stress, busyness, and in addition to that, sometimes there's feelings of loss and loneliness and struggle that come tied in with, with Christmas. Um, there's these expectations around things that you're going to do, right? There's activities around Christmas that, that happen. You don't go caroling in July, right? That might be a Christmas expectation. Um, there's there's the, like the way that you'll actually spend the holidays. For me, I, one of my favorite services of our year is our Christmas Eve service here at Crossroads. And that's always followed by Christmas Eve with our closest friends, which is loud and boisterous, and it's complete with a competitive reading of the night before Christmas. You can ask me about that later if you want to know what that means. Um, and then Christmas Day is just a, a big thing at our house. We, we go big on Christmas. We do a multi-course meal with a, a wine pairing for each course that culminates with this big rib roast at the end. For those of you old enough to remember the Flintstones, it's like that thing that would knock Fred's car over. That's, that's Christmas dinner. Um, so I want you to think those expectations, they usually start around Thanksgiving, right? Maybe some overzealous retailers get out there a week before Thanksgiving, starts getting earlier and earlier, and those expectations start to build. What would happen to those expectations around Christmas if they started in June? Maybe something, maybe something really crazy about Christmas and they do start in June, I don't know. What about a, a year, 10 years, 100 years, hundreds of years? expecting Christmas to come. What would happen to those expectations? Would they grow? Would they build? Would you just get like all hopped up and waiting for Christmas? Or would they fade? Would they get distorted? Or maybe they would be forgotten altogether. All of those things, the very first Christmas suffered the effects of all of those things. So here's the backstory. God chose for himself a man named Abram, and he told Abram, he said, through you, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Not only that, but I'm going to bless all of humanity through your family. And God went on to make these holy agreements with the family of Abraham and a couple other people throughout the way he made another agreement with a guy named David who was a king, he was a great king, um, he was a great warrior, and God promised David that there would be one of his heirs to sit on the throne of Israel forever, and that, that his heir would reign perfectly with perfect authority, and that it would be an eternal, it would be an eternal reign. So God's people are moving along, and as happens today, life happens, right? And they made some poor choices and they became disobedient, and they started to lack faith. And as a result, there were some consequences, and they ended up being taken captive by foreign nations. But all along, God is still with them, and he, still, he sends them messages and reminders. He's like, look, I am going to rescue you, and through you, I am going to provide the Savior for all of humanity. And they still, they go, they go on their way. Some of them are, are tracking with God, and some of them not. And they end up being, um, they're released from captivity, 
And in God's timing, just as he promised, he sent the Messiah, the King, the Savior. Just as he promised, but as no one, no one expected. So our hope and prayer for the next four weeks is that as we dig in to the story of the original Christmas and we look at the history and we look at the players and we look at the hero himself, Jesus, of the original Christmas, that you would just be surprised with the joy and the hope and the love and the peace that came with that first Christmas. We really hope that through God working through the people of Crossroads that we would just bless you with a really unexpected Christmas this year. So Christmas comes, right, like peanut butter and jelly, Christmas and family, they go together. You can't, they're just, they're just there together. And for some of us, you know, just like the expectation of Christmas itself, that's a happy thing. It's a sense of joy, and when everybody's together, it's great. And for some of us, it's not so great. You might not look forward to it. Um, it might be hard. For some of us, that means we travel. For some of us, that means we stay put. It's Christmas, we stay in our jammies, and we don't leave the house. We just enjoy, enjoy the day. Um, there's, there's also, like, the fact that some families are large, so the gatherings are big, and they last a really long time. Some families are small. Did you guys, um, over, over Thanksgiving, really, really cold, we were on the, uh, on the Cape with Gail's folks, so we just, we didn't move. That was one of those holidays, we didn't move, we, we watched football all day. And I must have saw that 23andMe commercial, I, I don't know, 15, 20 times, just over and over and over. Um, did you guys see that? It's, it was a, a, the caption, there, were no, there was no um, audio, just a, and it was an older gentleman, and he was greeting people to his house for Thanksgiving, and the first thing says, my Thanksgivings used to be small. And the first person comes in and it shows the DNA match, you know, how much, what percentage of DNA match. And all these different people are coming in. And now, thanks to 23andMe, my Thanksgivings are huge, right? Um, so 23andMe does, through DNA testing, basically gives you like a family tree or a, um, a, a genealogy is the word that the, the Bible uses for these things. How, can you guys like, you might know who your grandparents are, right? And where they're from? Maybe great-grandparents. Maybe if some of you guys are really into this, might be like great-great. Can you go back 52 generations? 52 greats? So that's, that's where the first Christmas story starts. It starts with this, the family tree of Jesus, a genealogy, and it goes back 52 generations. It's a really long list of names that are really hard to pronounce. Don't make fun of me. I'm going to try to pronounce them all, so just hang with me. Um, and in Jesus's family tree, it's just, it's so amazing. Like if you can, if you can, um, power your way through this list of names and dig into it with me, I think you're, you're going to be surprised. Um, there, there are, um, people who are abused and neglected and who made horrible, horrible choices and, and tyrants. And right next to them, are um, just everyday folks, people who spent their life devoted to God, um, and there were good and just and, and great kings, um, but they're all right, right next to each other. So this morning, as we look at the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus, 
I hope, my hope for you is that it would encourage you and it would build your hope, right? That no matter um, what the circumstances that you find yourself in right now as you head into Christmas, that you would remember that God keeps his promises. I'll say it again. The unexpected family of Jesus should give us hope even in the midst of the most trying circumstances because God keeps his promises. So we're going to dive in to the first chapter of Matthew. Before I put the text up there, just a few brief notes on Matthew, right? So uh, Matthew is one of Jesus' 12 closest friends, one of his disciples. Really interesting dude because he was Jewish and yet he was a tax collector. So he worked for a foreign government and he was part of the oppression and the deception and the theft of his own people. Um, and then Jesus comes up to him and says, Matthew, you're done with that. You're going to come with me now. And Matthew turns his life over to Jesus and he ends up being one of Jesus's biographers. The book was written in the 50s and 60s, not the 1950s and 60s, just 50s, 60s. Um, and it was written primarily to a Jewish audience, which is important. It has some implications for us in that um, they were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting a savior. They were expecting a warrior king to come in and free them from Roman oppression and to reunite all their people who had been scattered all over the, the known world. The other th reason that it's significant is that most of them would have been really familiar with Old Testament law. And the Old Testament, there's 613, 603 laws um, that folks were required to follow. And some of them seem random, but as we look at them, you're going to see folks in this family tree um, that either willingly, unwillingly, unknowingly, due to circumstances, they ended up not keeping those laws. Um, so Matthew gives them this genealogy, and these people's names come up, and they're, the audience is looking at them thinking like, wow, okay, this is Jesus' family tree. All right, here we go. I'm not going to read them all at once. I'm not going to subject you to that. We're just going to break it up into pieces so I can collect myself before I have to try to do the next set of verses. Here we go. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, David, the son of Abraham. A couple things. Nope, just, you can stay on verse 1. Uh, Jesus Christ. That's not his first name and his last name. Jesus is his first name. Christ is his title. Means people, when people saw that, they would have thought of David. They would have thought of the promise to David about a ruler king. Um, so that was that agreement, right? God made an agreement with David. You will have an heir. He will reign perfectly. He will reign forever. And then the son of Abraham, that's significant because, right, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation, um, and he was the one who the promise was given to. You will, through you and your family, all of humanity will be blessed. King, Savior, Messiah, in one verse. That's how, that's how Matthew starts the book of Jesus. That, he's setting people up for what the rest of they're about to read. Messiah, King, Savior. Okay, now we can go to verse 2. Actually, I think we, this is verse 2 through 6. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amen. Get to the first hard one, and I couldn't do it. Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. So in this group of verses, Matthew does something kind of shocking. In, uh, in genealogies of antiquity, women were not listed. There are four women, or there's actually five, if you include Mary at the end, but there are four women that we just read, right? Just, can you put up their names again? So these four women are very interesting, interesting people. So Tamar was basically the laws and the way things were set up. She was denied the prospect of becoming a mother by the deceitfulness of men. Not like men as in humanity, but like men, male. So she devised this plan. She disguised herself, and she tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her so she could blackmail him. That's Tamar, right? I should have told you this is going to be like PG-13, like drifting into, like... Um, Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. John talked, gave us the recap of Rahab's story a couple weeks ago in his portion of um, James. Gentile, she was not of the Jewish nation. Prostitute, she sold sexual favors. That was, that was what she did. She also did some very cool things and protected the, the people of God because she recognized God for who he was and the things that he said he did. Ruth, so Ruth was from the country of Moab. And one of those 613 laws says a Moabite will not be a part of the congregation to the 10th generation. So do the math on that. That's a really long time. But here she is, not just in the congregation, but she's in the family line of Jesus. And then the last one, Uriah's wife. She doesn't even get named in the list. She's called Uriah's wife, but her name is Bathsheba. And so we don't know much about her other than that um, she was involved in this adulterous affair with David. Um, David ended up having her husband killed so he could be with her, and the whole thing was just messy. Um, we look, when we look at the people in Jesus' genealogy, you know, we look at David and we look at, at Abraham, and we see this idea that... Um, doesn't God's going to work his plan, right? The people are there, but God's going to do his thing. And we look at, at this list of women and kind of their checkered pasts, questionable decisions, circumstances that they found themselves in. Um, Matthew, like I said, did, is doing something shocking. He's letting the people know a couple of things. First and foremost, he's like kind of telling them to brace themselves. Get ready, because this story is not going to be what you expected. The story of Jesus beginning with his birth is not going to be what you expected. He's letting folks know that 
Jesus did more for women than anybody in history. He did more for the cause of women. He invited them into his inner circle. He taught them just like he taught men, which was unheard of. He elevated their position in society. They were the first ones that he appeared to after his resurrection. Jesus was, he wanted to reach out to people who were pushed to the sides, who society said, you are second-class citizens, not citizens, property objects, and bring them, and bring them in. And the last thing, which would be the most immediate chronologically thing that would happen, Jesus was going to be born to an unwed teenage mom. Matthew's setting the stage, getting, getting everybody ready. God works. God takes joy. God takes pleasure in reaching out to those who are marginalized, disenfranchised, hurt, has-beens, used-to-bees, never were, never were, never was, um, and revealing his glory in them and through them. As a matter of fact, that's when God is at his best. The biggest things that God has done were when he took people who shouldn't, he shouldn't have, people he shouldn't have taken, and he used them for his glory and for the growth of his kingdom. So cool the way that Matthew is setting up the rest of Jesus' story and, and how Jesus, what, the way that he's, he's going to work. All right, let's look at the next set of verses. All right, these are more difficult. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Josem, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Thank you. <laughs> that is a list of kings, and not exactly, go ahead, Ian, if you could put that list up there. Sorry, that's really small. Um, but basically, they alternate, good king, bad king, good king, bad king. And the, the source where I found these descriptions, like, went a little bit farther from good and bad. Depraved, heinous, great. I mean, like, really, based on the way these guys ruled, from what we learned from them from the Bible, um, there were some really good guys, and there were some really bad guys. But the nature, so let's look at the nature of the good kings and bad kings. The good kings were those who followed God themselves with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who led the people to do the same things. The bad kings were those who chose, like Israel was surrounded by all these other countries, and they all followed a different, a different God. And even, not even just the countries, just di different people groups followed different gods. So either they turned their backs fully on their God, the God, or they did like this buffet, golden corral kind of spirituality where like they would pick and choose. Like, oh, I like this, the God of the Bible. I like that part of him. I, I want to be able to control like my God a little bit. So I'm going to pull from this guy over here and I can like make him do what I want by doing the right things. Um, 
so that's good and that's bad. It's not necessarily how prosperous their reign was or how the economy was or how their foreign relations were. It was how they related to God and how they led the people in relating, um, in relating to God. And what I think we can take from this list of the kings is this, and especially like we look at our country right now and regardless of what side of things you fall on, um, it's scary and divisive and where are we going, where are we heading, what's gonna happen? It's not the things that are important, the things of God are not dependent upon the right people doing the right things. It's about faith in God doing what he said he would do. It's about faith in knowing that God's plan as laid out in scripture is gonna come to fruition regardless of the dumb things that people may or may not do, regardless of the great things that people may or may not do. There's a verse in the New Testament that says God works out all things in the conformity of his will. Doesn't matter. God will make his plan work. All right. What's the next verse, Dean? Okay. And the deportation of Babylon. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akam. Akam the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, sorry, Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of, nope, we're going to stop right there. We're going to save that one. Um, so up until verse 15, this is like the end, com coming towards the end of the Old Testament. And actually Zerubbabel is the last guy we know anything about from the Old Testament. Everybody after Zerubbabel, there were, they think there were genealogies that were held in the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed in the 70s. And um, Matthew, that's probably where Matthew sourced the rest of that history from. So it's the end of the Old Testament. The people of God were freed from Babylon, but they still didn't have their king. They, they were allowed to return to Jerusalem, and they were allowed to um, start doing some of the things that God had, had asked them to do. Next verse. Should be just 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. All right, so if you're reading through this, I don't know about you guys, confession time here, but when I get to the lists of stuff in the Bible, especially long lists, my eyes tend to gloss over a little bit, and I really have to struggle to like, okay, Jesus, please show me what's significant in these, in these verses. Um, there is a verb tense change. All the other parents, right? Jacob, the father of Joseph, that's how they're listed. So-and-so, the father of. So-and-so, the father of. So-and-so, the father of. We get here, and it says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Jacob, the father of, right? In the original language, that was an activity of the parents. The parents initiated that. It was their, their doing. Of whom Jesus was born. That is, there was an outside entity. That wording tells us there was an outside entity 
that caused that to happen. Bible scholars, theologians call it the divine passive. When there's, the party is absent, it's God's activity. Jesus being born of Mary, teenage, unwed, mom, virgin birth, was an act of God. It's about God, right? It's about him following through and doing what he said he would do. A lot of verses, a lot of names, a lot of stuff. I'm going to give you three things that hopefully we can walk away with. And hopefully three things isn't too much. Ian, can we put the first one up there, please? Nope. Oh, I missed the verse. Sorry. My bad. Let's do verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon were 14. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14. This is really kind of cool. Um, in the Hebrew language, every letter has a number value. Every consonant has a number value. David's name in the Hebrew language equals 14. D's are 6, V is 2, or whatever the Hebrew equivalents are. It's 14. That would have smacked the original audience in the face as Jesus is the heir to David's throne. It would have just jumped all over at him. And it's one of those things where like, oh good, the genealogy is over. I can move on to something else. Like, there is so much depth in scripture, folks, if we ask God to guide our reading and really be willing to, to, to dig into it. Okay, now, the three things. Um, the first one, your family of origin does not dictate your future. Each of our family trees has broken branches and apples that fell a long way from the tree, right? Including Jesus. As we just went through, Jesus' lineage is filled with questionable characters and scandal. He was born into scandal. One of the, Jew, the, the laws of the, the Jewish law, the Old Testament law, an unwed woman who became pregnant could have been stoned to death. So, but God, in his thing, doing his thing, in his timing, in his plan, chose Mary, who was not yet married, to give birth to Jesus. He was born into scandal. As he grew up, as an adolescent, his parents didn't get him. His siblings thought he was nuts and tried to take control of him and manage him and handle him. And those closest to him betrayed him. Jesus has walked in your Uggs and your Jordans, right? He knows what family can be and, and the, the, hard, the hard parts of it. But here's the thing, folks. When we come to that point where we accept and we acknowledge that Jesus is the King and the Messiah and the Savior, and we ask him for forgiveness, we are grafted into the family of God. We are given a perfect, perfect heavenly father. Folks, that is, like, I, I can't wrap my brain around that, right? We don't know a single person who's perfect. We might know people who are, like, good at this or good at that, but perfect in every facet of their character. That's our heavenly father. That's the family into which we are made a part 
your family of origin does not dictate your future. Just because there are some skeletons in your closet, just because maybe you heard some things growing up about you, just because your circumstances led you to believe certain things about yourself, maybe the flip side of that, maybe you're super successful and your family was the cleavers and it was like just white picket fence and 2.3 kids and a dog and like everything, everything has gone right for you. All of that, the good and the bad, is nothing compared to the family that we have in Jesus and the father that we have in Jesus and through Jesus. The second one. What society says about you is not what God says about you. <clears throat> Whatever society, the world, your classmates, your teachers, your boss would have you believe that pundits, people who are supposed to be experts, they would have you believe that things like your race or your gender um, or your sexual orientation or your successes or your failures or your mistakes are what give you value and give you identity. That is not what God says. Those things, if we chase after those things for our value, it's exhausting and it's an empty pursuit. It's like trying to shovel water or chase the wind. You can chase after it as hard as you want because that's what everybody says you should do, but you will end up empty. You were created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. You have value because before time began, Jesus thought about each one of you. Not just us, as an individual, Jesus had you in mind. And he loved you before any of this ever came to be. And he created you on purpose and for a purpose. You have such unbelievable worth and value that Jesus stepped out of eternity and into time and he clothed himself in the frailty of the human condition. And he was born of a virgin and he lived a perfect, sinless life. And he died an innocent death and he rose, he rose again triumphantly, beating death. And he promises that he's going to come back for each one of us. You, as an individual, each one of you was worth that. That's where your value is. That's where your worth is. Not in any of the other stuff. Last one. God finishes what he starts. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're just a hot mess. 
or you're thinking to yourself, I am, I'm too far gone. Like, that's great. Jesus can forgive other people, but you don't know what I've done, where I've been, the things I've said. You don't know. Maybe you've been trying to walk with Jesus for a long time. You've given your life to him. Maybe it hasn't been that long. Maybe you're new to the things of faith and new to the family of God. Maybe you've been tracking with Jesus and things have been going along really well, but every once in a while, you hit a speed bump or maybe a brick wall. And it causes you to question God. And it causes you to question your place with him. Once the God of the universe has called you, he got you. He's not going to let you go. There's a verse in the New Testament. It says that he who started a good work in you will see it through to its completion. God finishes what he starts So what is it, folks? What is it that would, um, that dictates your future, that, that makes you feel ways about yourself that are not true, that makes you feel like worth less than you are? We all got, we all have stuff, right? We've all made mistakes. We all have circumstances that we feel like are too hard to go through or over or around. There's something. We look at Jesus' family line, and I don't know all of you guys, like, personally, but I'm pretty sure those folks did far wackier stuff, worse stuff than anything that you may or may not have done. And they've been more successful than you may or may not be, right? This isn't all about the the hard stuff. Whatever it is, whatever those things are, whether it's success or failure, whether it's wealth or poverty, whether it's arrogance or self-loathing, Jesus can take that from you. He wants to take it from you. He wants you to give it to him. And all it takes is a prayer, right? There are folks in the back of the room. Sometimes if we verbalize these things, it makes them real, right? You're thinking about what that thing is that you want Jesus to take that's been dictating your future, that's been holding you back, that's been keeping you from moving forward, that's been making you think that God cannot finish what he started in you. Either quietly in your seat, you say that prayer, you go back to the back of the room, you ask somebody to pray with you. Right, because remember how we started this, folks. The, the family tree of Jesus, I hope and pray that as we look at the unexpected family of Jesus, that we would just be so filled with hope and encouragement because God keeps his promises.